Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Global Health Direct, where we focus on global issues related to healthcare by getting local perspectives. In this episode, we have two individuals from the organization FIMRIC to talk about their global health experiences. Our fun fact for this episode is that the summer classic, the ice cream sundae, was actually invented by getting around a ban on ice cream sodas, replacing the soda with syrup. Just another example at the persistence of sellers, but this time with a very tasty outcome. Our first guest is Vikram Baru. Uh, Dr. Vikram Baru was, is a founder and chairman of the board of directors of FIMRIC, a practicing physician and senior healthcare executive with an extensive background in telehealth and healthcare technology. He is currently the chief operating officer of Kosejo Sano, the only true multicultural, multilingual patient engagement solution in healthcare. Our second guest is Daphne Colidron. Holding a bachelor's degree in marketing from the Banking and Commerce School in Mexico City, she finished her master's in international peace studies from the UN University for Peace in Costa Rica in June 2017. She is certified in public health and is currently getting certified in project management. Daphne is passionate about contributing to peace building around the world to help others and to tackle these problems at the grassroots level. So I'm very glad to have both of you speaking tonight and being able to have this opportunity. I guess we'll just get right into our first question, which is, how do you define global health? Thanks so much, Ashwin, for the introduction and for the invitation to the podcast. Uh, Hello, everyone. I guess I will start with what I consider to be my own uh, definition of global health. I think that it's a holistic discipline that makes efforts in transnational health, focusing mainly on prevention and clinical care, but more from an individual uh, point of view. For me, global health has the main objective to achieve equity on access to healthcare for every single individual on our planet. Great, and uh, I'll go uh, next again. Thanks for the invitation as well. This is Vic Bakru. So, you know, to me, global health really represents an opportunity, and it's an opportunity to improve uh, the help of uh, individuals around the world. And when I think of help like Daphne, I think of it in a very holistic sense. So to me, global health is um, health of all people around the world and all dimensions of one's individual health. So everything from your mental health, your emotional health, um, to your spiritual health, as well as your physical health, of course. Um, so it really is a very holistic um, you know, sense of, of meaning to me. Okay, yeah, that was actually really interesting to hear about. Definitely, personally, I'm uh, very interested in global health and hearing definitely outside perspectives and those actually working directly in the field is definitely a good perspective to get just so just to get a better sense of how it is practiced and actually applied in the real world and how we can actually see it being acted out by organizations. And speaking on this term, what what would you say FEMRIC does in terms of global health and kind of the impact that it has? Um, Well, for me... And I'm not only saying this because I work at Fimbrick and I love it, but Fimbrick focuses on the public good in general. It actually believes in a global perspective. I guess that as an organization, we have a scientific and an interdisciplinary approach. We recognize the need of like a multi-level approach for interventions 
And that is why we work on education, health access, participation, prevention of diseases. And this is why we work at the grassroots level. The role of FinBreaking Global Health is that it actually understands the need for, I guess, more comprehensive frameworks for health policies and, and financing that is needed around the globe. We do this globally, but also FinBreak recognizes how important the role of community health workers or local workers are, you know, like how essential they are for, for this mission. FinBreak, to me, sets the example and allows people who want to make a change in the world to be part of this process of achieving equity and access to healthcare you know, by living the Finberg experience, regardless of your background or your education, which is why, you know, like uh, global health is multidisciplinary because we really need from everyone in the first place. And, and you know, this is why we need from everyone in the field. And I believe that that's exactly what Finberg does for global health. Gosh, I, I, I couldn't have said it better, Daphne. I think that was great. Um, I'll, uh, I'll probably only add to that that, uh, FIMRIC, as we call it, um, you know, around the office and around the world, uh, stands for Foundation for International Medical Relief of Children. And the organization started with a focus, uh, initially on, on children. But, you know, as we started to build clinics in different parts of the world, um, and as we started to create projects, um, in the communities to build trust with them, to, um, really understand the needs of the community, to survey those needs, uh, to build solutions around those needs. Um, what we started to understand was that to have healthy children, you really have to have healthy families. Um, and healthy families uh, translates into healthy communities. Um, and so we really started focusing, um, I would say, a few years into uh, the effort um, on finding ways to support the health of the entire community. Now, in Uganda, that may mean that we have weekly health groups that meet and talk about the health needs of the community at that moment. And so I believe that what FIMREC does is ever-changing. It really depends on uh, what is facing, what challenges are facing the community at any moment and how we can be effective either on our own as an organization serving the needs of those communities or partnering uh, with other uh, organizations and individuals, um, you know, who are similarly interested in the health of the overall community. Yeah, it's very insightful and very interesting to hear about how kind of just looking at global health, how we can break it down to just uh, a term that's even in the sense it's literally called global, but we can break it down to just children and families and break it down to such a deeper level to see how it can be impacted and where this impact can happen. And it's good to see that I guess we can still have this kind of focus without losing ourselves in our goal and losing kind of where we're trying to go towards and what our focus is on. And I guess in terms of focusing on children and families in local communities, uh, can you tell us about the places that you have worked in the local communities that you've been engaged in? Well, in my experience, I actually started to work for Fimrig um, like two and a half years ago. I work right now in Restauración Dominican Republic. So just for you guys to have an idea, we are located in a binational area since we are bordering with Haiti. So when I arrived, I started serving as a volunteer coordinator for Fimbric, and later I became the field operations manager. So this is pretty much, you know, like how I started my journey in, in public health and managing, you know, like the projects uh, dedicated to improve healthcare in underserved communities. So these uh, communities, I want you to, you know, like think of a very underserved community in the border of, you know, like in the Dominican and Haitian border, 
we have a municipality that has around, I want to say that a little bit more than 20 little communities or yeah, like 20 little towns. And we have around 7,000 inhabitants, uh, you know, like that they might be, you know, like registered, but we might have a little bit more of people due to the Haitian immigrants. Um, at this point, you know, like I, I'm not only, you know, like working for Fimbrick, but somehow I, thanks to this position, I'm also supporting the municipal hospital and the rural clinic by serving as a point of contact or using, you know, like my net networking just to facilitate delivery of medicine to these places. You know, Daphne is being very humble right now, but it's our field operations managers that do uh, do the boatload of all the work. Uh, and they're the ones who really keep the project sites running. If you've ever been to a FIMRC project site, you know how central the field operations manager role is um, to the running of the, of, of the entire program and to the coordination of the various activities in service of the communities uh, where we work. Um, so I always uh, have a tremendous amount of respect and appreciation for the work that our our, our field operations manager or uh, FOMS, as we call them uh, locally, uh, do. Um, in terms of uh, my specific role, I'm a physician by training, um, and I ended up uh, getting a degree, an MBA um, in healthcare management. And so I've worked in hospital administration um, as well as uh, a number of digital health startups. And all of that experience um, really has tied back to what I learned in my various roles at, at FIMRIC. Um, from the earliest of days, um, setting up some of our project sites uh, to growing and building the team, um, whether that be stateside or or in the field, um, to then ultimately learning how to let go. Uh, you know, we started to get founder syndrome several years into our organization's uh, uh, founding, and it was um, it took a lot of uh, of effort and courage to uh, turn it over. And and I think you know the only reason I was able to do so was because uh, we found a. Um, an incredible leader um, by the name of Meredith Mick, um, who serves as our CEO today and, and has been CEO for the last 10 years. Um, and prior to that was actually, uh, started her work in the company actually, field operations manager, um, former Peace Corps as well. Um, so nonetheless, uh, you know, that, that's a little bit, uh, you know, of, of sort of what my role has been over time. Um, hopefully that's helpful to, to those of you listening today. Uh, yeah, actually, one thing, one point that you brought up that a term I've actually never heard before, uh, you mentioned founder syndrome. I'm just wondering what that is and kind of like what that, I guess, just entails. Sure, sure, sure. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of, um, a syndrome among those who start initiatives or programs or organizations where you are so passionate about the project that you are working on, um, that if you've done your job well, you end up attracting incredible people like Daphne, like Meredith, like, you know, many, many others, hundreds of others, um, over the years. Uh, you end up attracting great talent to the organization. And through typically, um, your own observation, you understand that it's time to pass the torch. And that's a really hard thing for someone who has started an initiative, um, to realize and to, to come to accept at some point in time. And I went through that evolution, having started FIMRIC uh, back in 2002, 2003. Um, and, you know, at the at the time when I was uh, ready to hand over uh, the reins, so to speak, um, and, and ask another person to carry on this vision uh, that we had all come up with um, over the first, uh, you know, several years of, of building the organization, um, it was through the you know, incredible talent of uh, the team that was in place at that time um, that... 
the founder myself felt comfortable moving on to uh, other projects and taking on other roles within the organization and letting someone else steer the ship, if you will. And and so that's what I mean by founder syndrome. Um, but it was uh, it, it was it was frankly made a lot easier, I think, for me because of how um, how wonderful and incredible um, our team was uh, at the time that I I decided to um, to step down from that CEO role. Yeah, that honestly must be really difficult to step down, especially after you've done so much to just build it up. And it's kind of like your own creation and definitely having to kind of just hand over the reins or when your time's up, it's definitely really hard to let go. And I know that's something that uh, can be especially difficult for people that have, especially with something like Femory Palace has such a global reach as well. It's really hard to walk away from something like this or just to uh, let someone else have that position that you once had as well. And I'm glad that whoever's filling your seat for you now is someone that's very qualified and you've been able to attract such qualified individuals. So it leaves, it makes it a lot easier at the very least that, you know, it's left in good hands and people that are very capable of kind of just continuing your mission and your values. And in terms of, I guess, just the work that's been done, especially and the places you've seen in terms of, I guess, just like the living conditions and the healthcare that's accessible and its own quality. What have you seen in these places that might contrast what we might see in more developed countries like here in Canada or other places like the U.S. as well? Well, I guess that perhaps Vic has seen way more than me, but uh, I have seen a lot, you know, like, and, and I'm just going to refer right now to the DR, just to the Dominican Republic and Haiti. And sometimes I have to be honest, I wish that I hadn't seen what I had seen. You know, reality can be really, really tough and hit you. Um, these communities, you know, like they can, or the way that I can only describe them right now would be as precarious communities where literally in order for you to have, you know, like an ibuprofen, you sometimes need, or you might, you have to walk two or three hours to end up, you know, like arriving to a clinic where they are just going to tell you that they ran out of ibuprofen. So you just come back home with perhaps, you know, like more pain and with still no solution. So, um, I guess that the way I, you know, like the main contrast is that everything is so different. These communities, uh, in them, you can only find, you know, like around 30% of access to water. And when you have running water, it does not even arrive clean. Uh, we're supposed to have around 15 rural communities, you know, like one per, per town, and we only have seven. And from the seven of them, you know, like you might not find all the medicine. We're we're talking about places where 80, around 80% 80 of the people have no toilets. So having a toilet is, you know, like just for the elite, this is a, a luxury. Uh, we still have a lot of teen pregnancy. Um, access to electricity is something that unfortunately we, the, it, we're around, I think that 48 or something percent, you know, around that uh, of people not having access to electricity. Um, and whenever we have electricity, of course, we don't have it for 24 hours. You know, like in this, in these communities, the majority of people are illiterate. We have a municipal hospital. We're very blessed to have it, but, uh, this is a building that used to be a building for an old political party. So it doesn't even have, you know, like the proper infrastructure of a hospital. Um, just for you guys to have an idea, the, uh, one of the, the OBGYN at this hospital, she had to wait for nine years in order to have uh, her equipment for her consultation. And at the end, it was one of our Fimbrix volunteers who ended up bringing the donation. So 
there is for sure a huge contract, you know, like that affects definitely the quality of healthcare and quality of living in, in this community. I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, what I find when I, um, in the past, have visited various uh, FIMRIC uh, uh, project sites and uh, the communities we serve um, is that uh, living conditions and, and the quality of uh, healthcare, um, of access to healthcare in particular, um, you know, is much different than what we have here in the U.S. or uh, to your earlier point, uh, Ashwin, to in Canada. Um, and Daphne, I think, did a great job of summarizing for you, um, you know, some of the uh, areas of opportunity um, that these communities have for improving living standards, um, quality of life, as well as, um, you know, the quality of access to healthcare that they have. Having said all of this, what inspires me and keeps me um, engaged in a uh, very passionate way about the work that we do at FIMRIC and frankly all of the various organizations um, in public health um, and global health um, that uh, every day strive to support uh, communities around the world um, in one way or another, uh, whether it's healthcare or community development, access to clean water, um, any of these um, basic fundamental human rights, um, as I believe. Um, what inspires me uh, is really that the people I have met, the families I have gotten to know in the communities we serve are the most beautiful people in the world. Um, you know, it's one of those situations where you encounter a family that has so much less than you do back home, and yet you see their happiness, you see their love for one another, often you see their service in one another. Um, I worked in a, a different company in a startup uh, that uh, took patients from East Africa and the Middle East um, to India or Europe for medical care, for complex surgeries that weren't available in their local areas. And often these patients were uh, being able to afford a trip of this sort to go get surgery um, by having pooled money from the communities um, in which they reside. And this is very common. It's more common than you would believe. Um, but the individuals who we sometimes view as having so little, I can tell you from direct experience, they have so much in terms of um, their connection to other people in and around them. Um, their shared experience um, of, of, of working through uh, just incredible and, and unjust uh, difficulty. Um, but, but yet they, uh, they are some of the happiest and, and, and in many ways the luckiest people I have ever met. So I have immense respect and appreciation um, for the members of our communities. Um, um, so happy to go, happy to share more, but just at a high level, you know, when I think about living conditions and quality of life and, um, and so on, uh, you know, immediately our minds are drawn to uh, the deficits and uh, some of the um, gaps, if you will, between what we see in front of us when we're on a trip or when we're in the community serving and what we have back home. And while that's true, I, I challenge um, you know, each volunteer that visits our sites um, and, and all of our staff, of course, continually um, to observe as I have observed um, you know, the, the beauty of the people that we serve. Yeah, it's especially really heartbreaking to see people that have less than you and have to suffer for things that we might find especially kind of commonplace and things that we can imagine having, not having or having to live without. And especially is kind of sad to see 
that they've had such less opportunities and also had more of a focus on kind of still being grateful for what they have because you mentioned how these people are still very happy and love each other so much and it's definitely kind of just from our just way of living we kind of associate our happiness with being uh able to just afford these resources or just having these resources within our reach so definitely seeing people that are less off we might assume oh they must be so unhappy they must be so kind of just depressed or their family life must be terrible but we still see that they still care for each other and they still love each other maybe even more so than in certain places here so that might kind of come as a surprise because oh it's like they have so less they have so little or they have so much less than us but they can still kind of make the most of it and they can still kind of love each other and care for each other and that's something that shows i guess just the human spirit and how even places that are less fortunate and have less resources people can still support each other and still love each other and it's something that's very admirable in these people as well having this strength to be able to love each other and care for each other in this time especially in areas where they're strapped for resources and not able to afford the things that we can and i guess just keeping more of a a more recent affairs in terms of your operations and your actions how has covid been affecting your kind of your work and your operations and or or even possibly femrix as a whole um well covid definitely you know like affected uh our operations on site in ddr i want to say that almost completely um from our current seven active programs uh the moment we're just running one and this one is our diabetes and hypertension club and we actually had to you know like limit or modify the program just to uh, delivery of medicine but without consultations um whenever we're ready to open and start working you know like with the quote unquote new normality we will have to modify of course you know like how we execute our programs inside and perhaps you know like start working with new protocols and determine which one is going is more important not that it's more important you know like but which one is going to be the order for reopening them um not to forget you know like that obviously covid-19 also affected our finances i guess that limiting us in every single aspect and forcing us to make decisions that perhaps we never thought we would have to make you know like closing the site like we just did right now for the dr and adapting our operations for to the protocol and working now virtually like we have been doing but i also want to say that covid-19 you know like changed fimrick's strategy and it's not necessarily it doesn't necessarily mean that it did it for the bad since i think that having this opportunity you know like of working now or changing you know like of working with the volunteers on site and starting now to working with the volunteers virtually we are learning a lot we were just noticing that we can face these challenges as i guess like as as individuals and also as an organization we're tasting new waters and trying new things uh, like all together learning in the process but i really feel that we're thriving at the same time so um somehow also or, or something very interesting for me is that covid kind of like you know like brought us together as as an entire team because we are not all the time we're very you know like or as in touch as we are right now with other FOMs with other field operations managers and thanks to these virtual programs i think that we are starting you know like to bond even more and to see our faces even more uh, and before perhaps we would just you know like be okay with oh yeah we're just going to have our our phone calls and without the need to have our faces you know like on a screen and and 
COVID didn't affect necessarily negative, you know, like our operations. Of course, that there are things that, oh, you know, like you might be kind of like not very happy about them. But if you really look at the bright side, we definitely have positive things with these changes. Yeah, very much agree. And, um, you know, what comes to mind when I think about what's uh, going on in our world today and, and specifically as it relates to FIMRIC operations, um, I'll share with you a, a very personal story about the earliest days of FIMRIC. So um, when we first started, uh, some of our first expenses um, were uh, something I put on my credit card. And I remember having a balance of 30000 and uh, freaking out a little bit about, wait, how? <laughs> it was so much, it was so easy to spend this money in, in getting the things that we needed, including, you know, plane tickets and so forth to go visit the sites and, and start to build some of the infrastructure and buy supplies and, and pay partners that were local on the ground and so forth. Um, and I remember, uh, you know, again, sort of uh, freaking out about uh, not really having a good plan for how we're going to pay, uh, for what we had already spent. And, um, group of 10 of us, um, uh, and I was in Washington, D.C. at the time, uh, you know, we were um, so committed uh, to continuing the work that we had started um, that we uh, were, we discovered a program where charities could go and work at um, a, an events uh, facility, a sporting events um, arena in D.C. Uh, for, you know, basically at basketball games, you could man the concession stands, you could work at the concession stands. And so our group of 10 uh, got trained and, and worked at the concession stands and sold um, hot dogs and soda and popcorn and, uh, and, and, and uh, other refreshments um, to the, uh, the fans who were attending the game. And uh, we did this more than more than a couple times. Uh, we did this a lot, actually. We did it. It was our Friday night tradition. Um, and what it would ha- what ended up happening is, uh, you you know, you you just get into such a rhythm, and you're you're so passionate about wanting to um, move the organization forward. Um, and so we, we we went every Friday, and uh, we sort of uh, over time developed a mantra that every time someone passed something across the counter they would yell uh you know out to the rest of the group behind the counter what they were passing across um and you know you would sort of have a situation where someone would 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 push a beer across the counter and they would say beer and everybody else on our team would say for the children and the the people the fans would look at us like we were crazy because we really weren't allowed to promote the fact that we were there um and they would just uh you know they would give us these odd looks <laughs> and and these you know these weird frowns about you know beer for the children whatever do you mean by that um and so uh so it really built a lot of a lot of team spirit and unity and that team spirit continues today um in the face of incredible hardship just in the world at large um, and in the communities uh, where we serve um, and with our own team, it has been difficult. It really has. You know, our uh, entire business model and, you know, going back to the earliest of days, we realized that, you know, we probably had to figure out a better way to raise money for our charity than than selling refreshments. Uh, It worked and it was great at the time, but we needed to think bigger. And so, uh, you know, that experience taught us um, but if we wanted Friday nights back, and if we wanted to, uh, you know, think bigger about the more, you know, the number of communities we could serve and you know, the amount of infrastructure we could build, we really had to come up with a better business model. And, you know, we had explored uh, the idea of grants um, and we've gotten several of them you know, over the years. 
Um, but it hasn't been uh, you know, the majority of our revenue. In fact, you know, less than 10% of all uh, funding for FEMRIC comes from grants or, or personal donations um, that are not tied to a volunteer program. And so, uh, frankly, the business model of the foundation has been uh, people travel to our clinic sites and they uh, pay a donation at that time uh, to help us uh, cover the expenses of their trip and to cover the expenses um, of the clinic and of the staff on site um, and in projects where we don't have a clinic than to cover the health programs um, that we run either through partner facilities or um, in the community that are public health oriented and maybe don't require a facility. So all of this is to say that, um, you know, the majority of revenue for the foundation comes from travelers, from volunteers visiting our sites. And now that's, that's not possible. So we are uh, definitely innovating in the moment. And as Daphne described, uh, we have uh, you know, transitioned some of our volunteer programs uh, to a virtual format. And Ashwin, I think that's how, how, how we all met was you participated in one of those programs. Um, and so uh, I would encourage, if you're listening now, I would encourage your listeners to consider um, volunteering for a program uh, online, virtually, uh, through FIMRIC or through another organization uh, that really does need the help right now um, to be able to continue delivering services um, in the communities uh, we serve um, until, you know, at least uh, it's safe to travel again. Um, and so, uh, you know, so for what it's worth, uh, some history there and, 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 and perhaps even a plea. Um, yeah, definitely. I'm very happy you shared that story with us. And honestly, as a member of the virtual program, I can definitely say that it's been something that I've definitely been the highlight of my summer so far and is something that I'm very invested in. I feel very satisfied with this program and something I would definitely strongly encourage to anyone listening. And definitely it is good to support this organization and what they've done. And being able to do this experience remotely is definitely an added convenience as well in, in facing COVID. And especially it would be good to sign up so maybe we could avoid uh, having more refreshment sales in the future. <laughs> and definitely, I guess maybe if <laughs> if any beer sold in the future, maybe we can think that was for the children and <laughs> have it towards go towards a better cause. <laughs> and yeah, speaking about how COVID has affected your operations, and thanks again for the great story. How has uh, COVID spread differently than you might see in these areas than in more de uh, developed countries? Or has there been no difference at all? Well, for me, there's actually a huge difference. I'm I'm going to try to share, you know, like uh, a few things that have been occurring, you know, like in, in Restauración. So um, I want to say that, yeah, definitely underserved communities have been more severely affected compared to developed countries, especially communities like Restauración uh, and its surrounding communities where people have had a hard time with one of the main rules of prevention, which is social distancing and, you know, like, and hand washing and due to the lack of water. So the lack of soap, even at schools, even before COVID-19, that was already an issue. Even at the hospital, it was hard to find soap. So um, you can like, you know, like prior to COVID, if we already had these problems, now imagine now that we have COVID happening. Uh, just think of the DR as a country where you live with more, with not just your immediate family, but you're living, you know, with your cousins, your grandmother, and you already have a lot of people in the house. So now that you are supposed to start, you know, like applying social distancing, that has been very, very tough for, for people in the community. 
then we have in DDR a country where public uh, transportation that basically consists, you know, like you would normally place, I don't know, five people in one car. And in DDR for public transportation, you actually fit seven or eight passengers in that car that it's supposed to be for five people. So even if you don't want to touch the other person you have next to you, you have no option because that's the public transportation that you have. And I'm talking about, you know, like a, a scenario from the city, not even from a rural community. So this is just for you to have an idea of like how it can spread differently. Actually, the very first case that we had in the municipality, it was diagnosed in a man. When he received the news, he, after he came back from the hospital, he went partying and drinking that night. And he refused to be sent to the city. He refused to be treated, uh, you know, like people kept talking to him, but they it was, I don't know, interesting to, to notice that people kept trying to convince him to go, but they couldn't be worried about the social distancing either. You know, like all of them, they were still at the park hanging out. So it wasn't until the National Guard came and they forced this guy, you know, like with cuffs, for him to be taken to the hospital into another city. So when the man was asked, you know, like, uh, like, are you worried about COVID? Like you, you are uh, affected by it, you might die. And then he said like, no, I am a man. You know, like I am a man and COVID is not going to kill me, but alcohol is just gonna help me. So you have multiple factors of like how COVID can affect, you know, like uh, these, these areas differently because you also have a macho cultural, at least for, for this type of community, you know, or, or I want to say that even for most Latin countries, you have multiple factors and then you add the culture. Um, and it, this, this type of, uh, of reasons, you know, like not just allow the COVID to spread faster, but also differently in the sense that Ignorance, it's also part of it, you know, like it does play an important role. And I want to say that maybe in more developed countries uh, or cities, um, you might tend to find more educated people that might be more aware of the consequences. So people from underserved communities uh, in DDR, they also seem to have lost faith in the healthcare system. So people are not going to the rural clinics or the municipal hospital because, you know, they know that the hospital does not have specialized staff or sometimes the medicine they need might not be available, the lack of medical equipment. And that is just for Dominican people. Then think of Haitian immigrants. And for them, it might be too expensive to end up paying for the medicine and the medical services. Um, and sometimes they are uh, the services denied to them if they don't have any legal ID or any passport. So you can imagine if all these people are not attending to the rural clinics or the hospitals, the chances of contagion might multiply, you know, like compared to developed countries because of all these reasons. And then um, I guess that inequality in general and inequity when it comes to access to health services, they contribute both to facilitate the transmission of any epidemic and, and to increase its negative impact. And then you place other factors such as the economical ones and in communities like Restauración. And then we add one more item, you know, like to the formula, which is a geographic barrier for Haitian people who cannot afford medical services in Haiti, but they cannot cross into our municipal hospital because now the borders are closed. So all these combinations, you know, like can be lethal. And that's why I want to say that right now the the, the work of every 
community health worker, it's even more intense. This is when you have them right now being very active because they know what kind of cure. They know the consequences. If people are were already behaving this way before COVID, right now, this is exactly the moment where, where it's very, very dangerous. Yeah, I, I would echo those sentiments and, um, you know, share the perspective that um, in the world, you know, there have been roughly seven and a half million or so cases uh, so far uh, of COVID and roughly uh, 420,000 or so deaths. And unfortunately, this is a point in our world's history where these numbers may not be the extent of disease burden that we're seeing uh, as a result of COVID. And when we look at the countries where FIMRIC operates, um, you know, in countries like Peru um, and Ecuador, um, the Dominican Republic, um, you know, they, uh, these countries in particular that I've mentioned just now here, um, have been disproportionately affected um, compared to uh, places where um, testing is far more limited and access to health resources and uh, the terrain is in, in many in many cases uh, far more um, rural um, in nature and, and so for example Uganda and so forth um, you know it's uh, it's it's one of those situations where it's uh, really a um, consideration of what's going on in each country um, at a given moment um, and I think we um, I think we're early uh, in understanding not just the how the virus um, evolves over time um, and mutates and so forth um, and, and, and the disease burden that it causes. But I think we're early in also understanding, uh, to Daphne's points, um, you know, much about how different, um, you know, we have our global society and then we have, um, you know, many different uh, cultures um, that are relevant in how we engage patients in each of these areas, or how we engage people in each of these areas, um, to explain to them uh, the risks, um, to help them understand um, what behaviors um, are uh, most consistent with avoiding falling ill um, or making the rest of your family ill if you are ill. Um, and it's difficult, right? Most of the communities we serve um, do not live in, in multi-room um, houses or, or buildings. Um, you know, they're, they're often, um, you know, living in, in, in accommodations that, uh, are much smaller, um, for an entire family, um, than is necessary to, you know, appropriately prevent, uh, disease transmission to the rest of the family. Um, and so there are so many considerations, um, to make when you are pursuing a public health strategy. Uh, in different parts of the world based on uh, cultural factors, again, as Daphne had mentioned uh, quite well, I think, um, but then also based on what's reasonable for this environment at this moment in time, right? Because it's not just um, a single approach uh, that consistently um, delivered uh, will uh, yield the right results. It's one of those situations where you really need to understand what's going on in the country as a whole and the community as a whole. Um, to be able to uh, appropriately design um, an effective public health strategy. Um, and so it, it really is quite different in the various countries, um, 10 or so, uh, that we work today. Um, so, so much more I think we could say on this topic, um, but at a high level, um, you know, I think we're still early, uh, only a couple months in, 
um, in terms of um, the U.S.'s um, journey, um, you know, in terms of sizable numbers, right? Of course, uh, having started in the January-February timeframe for us and earlier than that in other parts of the world. Um, but I think some of the countries in, in which we work are just now, unfortunately, starting to um, to have sizable numbers of cases. Um, and that's going to uh, you know, be something we watch closely over the next uh, next several months as we design strategies and participate um, in the government's response and the local government's response um, and um, other organizations like FIMRIC that are um, doing the best that they can um, to educate and to uh, disseminate information that's really critical at this moment. Yeah, definitely just the flow of information and how this has been unfolding is definitely important and conveying to citizens just across a global scale. And definitely, unfortunately, we can't say ignorance is something that can be associated just with low resource and uh, underserved areas as well, because we definitely see cases in more developed countries where we think people would not have the ignorance to just kind of just walk around or just kind of aimlessly spread viruses or just diseases in any scale has also been shown. So it's definitely something that's worth tackling as well on a global scale, as well as considering these lower resourced areas as well. And considering this pandemic as well, do you think these countries have been uh, well off enough equipped in handling this pandemic? Or do you think there is more to be done and more service to be provided to these countries in wake of what is currently happening? Ay, ay, ay. This is such a controversial question. I, I can't guarantee that if any politician or my own president uh, listens to this, he might disagree with me. But if you want my honest and humble opinion, I don't think that any um, that any hospital in the world was actually well equipped to handle this pandemic. You know, like for me, it's more related to how fast the countries responded, you know, like to meet the demands. But speaking just for Latin American countries, uh, I, I really feel that for many countries, this was still not an option. I also kind of feel that the answer, you know, like it's it's not very simple like among other things uh because for me health spending is not or yeah it is not the only indicator to take into account when when you evaluate a country's ability to cope with an epidemic such as that of the coronavirus i guess that we saw you know like how emergency hospitals you know were built at full speed in china then we have european doctors facing dilemmas of which patients they they should per prioritize and governments, you know, like ordering private medicine from other countries, etc. But I guess that in the like for Latin America or like we we already had a hard situation even before COVID, you know, and and the test of, of this pandemic has surely been uh, or hit us harder. In, in our countries, we already had much more complex health situations where, you know, like we have far fewer resources that are uh, destined for public health expenses. So um, for our authorities, I want to say that they had to cope, you know, like with the new coronavirus already in, in much more difficult conditions uh, than their, I guess, European or American counterparts. Um, I really think that there is there was already an, an unequal access in types of pandemic. And, and obviously we have seen this, you know, like how countries, just like Vic mentioned before, you know, like where we even have FIMRIC clinics, we have Bolivia, Nicaragua, Haiti, Honduras, Paraguay, you know, like Venezuela, all these countries, they, they already carry more risks. 
a, of course, that, you know, like a high expense on public health, however, does not mean that it's an, an efficient expense because, of course, that your resources uh, might not always be equitably, I guess, distributed. For me, I, I feel that all this must be taken into account when you evaluate the capabilities installed, installed in Latin American countries. Uh, if we already had insufficient uh, resources to cope with an epidemic, then you are the situation that we don't have enough beds, even before COVID, then we don't have enough tests. And when the tests arrive, the price is very high for patients, you know, and for them, it's like, okay, I either pay for my COVID-19 test or I bring bread to the table because not all the, all the people from these countries are actually receiving, you know, like aid from the government, like perhaps, you know, like people living in US and Canada. Just imagine in the DR, they are only getting $100 per month. In Mexico, people are not receiving anything from the government. So if you didn't have any savings, uh, well, sorry for you, but the government is literally doing nothing, you know, like to support people. I guess that the total number, uh, number of available physicians, hospitals or teams might be an adequate way to measure, you know, like effective response. But we also need to add the trust that the inhabitants have in their governments and the education of the inhabitants to respect the protocols or lockdowns. Because like we just we were just discussing in, in your prior question, you know, like the level of education or ignorance does play a really, you know, like important role. As long as people are aware of which ones are the consequences of this, you know, like pandemic, okay, maybe that's how you stop, you know, like the spread or the contagions. Uh, and you don't have to reach to that point where you have to hospitalize all of them. But I personally, I don't know if Vic will agree with me, but I really don't think that any country was uh, well equipped before COVID. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, uh, Daphne, and I will. Um significantly limit my comments here um, because what we need to focus on is next steps and um, unfortunately uh, no country uh, to Daphne's point um, was well equipped uh, to handle uh, the type of virus that coronavirus is and to be prepared enough for the number of patients um, who have needed care and frankly will need care. And so I think our um, focus as a, as an organization and, and frankly as a society uh, at large is to uh, figure out what we need to do to be better prepared for patients who are going to need our help um, over the next six to twelve months in particular. Um, you know, really until a treatment, an effective treatment um, or a vaccine is developed, um, we have to do our best to allocate our uh, limited resources um, and move those resources around the world, not just within each country. And I don't unfortunately see the type of collaboration I would like to see um, at the scale that I think we need to see it. And so I am hopeful when I um, see some of our, uh, some of our um, clinical leaders like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and, and many others uh, here in the US um, and then some of our global health leaders around the world, um, I'm encouraged that um, you know they are um, making the right decisions and guiding um, the public in the right way. Um, and I, I would I would emphasize that we should continue to follow uh, their guidance and their lead and their recommendations um, both here at home and 
um, and abroad uh, in the communities that, that certainly we serve um, to the best extent possible um, to equip our communities um, to, to deal with what we know um, may ultimately affect them either now or in the future. So some of what we're doing today might be in preparation um, for other diseases um, that, that may arise over time. Um, and so I think anything we can do today to uh, create some of that um, impact um, and some of those pathways for dissemination of information and education um, is, is crucially important. Um, but no, to answer your question uh, um, you know, very succinctly, no, I don't think uh, any country is well equipped uh, to, to handle uh, what, what coronavirus and COVID um, sort of have become. Uh, yeah, definitely. It's really important, especially to look at next steps moving forward, because we can only kind of just dwell on how long uh, and just dwell on just this topic of how long or how enough resources were managed or if there were enough resources to begin with or just kind of the systems. And it's definitely what's important focus to now on is the next steps on how to manage what we have right now and to ensure that something like this doesn't happen in the future. Because I know that especially we like to think of our healthcare facilities and healthcare systems around the world in places that are a lot more kind of sophisticated and more uh, advanced to like in the US or in Europe or Canada or just anywhere in like highly developed countries. We like to think, oh, any pandemic we would definitely be able to handle or our healthcare facilities definitely wouldn't fail in spite of this. Um, new wave, but we see that as soon as it started and right away, we saw hospitals being hit very hard, strapped for resources, unable to keep up with the supply, and there were definitely not enough measures being taken and a lot of reluctance by political figures. And there was a lot of different factors that went into kind of the com combinations of failures that occurred and looking at these failures and seeing how exactly they went wrong and ensuring that this doesn't happen again in the future is definitely very crucial because we could have, uh, in the future, we could avoid many deaths and many hospitalizations if these precautions are taken in the future. I guess as a final, just kind of question for this uh, episode, do you have any final call to action or any just kind of final words or anything you want to say for any listeners that are listening right now, just as a kind of a final point or something you want to leave to the viewer to think about or to act on? Sure. I guess that all this that has occurred has definitely, you know, like changed people's lives. And among some realizations, I think that one of them is that the pandemic has proved to the ones, especially for the people that do not work in public health or the medical field. Um, it is until now that I guess they start to pay attention of how important it is to, you know, like invest or pay more attention in everything that is related to prevention, just to keep more making more emphasis especially you know like for those countries that just destine a small amount of money of their uh, a, sm a small percentage of their gdp you know like to health and science i think that um i guess that my call to action would be you know or the lesson that i would like the coronavirus to leave is to start paying more attention that you know like a good reminder in the very first place or the first line of defense against the covid 19 it was a simple hand wash gesture and that simple gesture is not yet available to everyone, not just in Latin America, but in other countries, because they don't have still access to potable water. Uh, 
We're just thinking, we're just talking about, you know, like water. Definitely more policies for that are needed. I'm not even saying, you know, like, let's just make sure altogether that every community has a top-notch hospital. I'm just simply talking about access to water, you know. The call to action is not just for policymakers or for people in power, but I guess, you know, like, to try to encourage encourage every single individual that is interested, you know, like in this field or who is not interested in this field, but, but to try to take some time to think how this universal slash human right, you know, like that could have definitely prevent and can still prevent many diseases and help us to cope with any pandemic. It's still not, you know, like a right for every single person around the globe. So uh, it's, I guess that I, my dream could be, you know, like for every person that could, you know, like support organizations, not just like Fimbrick, but any other organization who is, whose purpose is to work at grassroots and, you know, like keep educating people, keep making sure that we all have access to water, like that would be beautiful. So not just again for policymakers, for, but for every single person, because seriously, this for me, this is something that really shocks me, you know, like a simple hand wash gesture can, save so many you know like troubles and this is still not something that people can afford to do or have the luxury to do you know i think my call to action is probably a bit a bit different in that i would ask people to commit to putting aside a portion of their week their month their year every week month or year to be in service of others. And I think there are so many ways. Sometimes, you know, people are not aware of the multitude of ways that they can serve other people. But at the, at the core, at the end of the day, we all have a responsibility to each other. And right now, in some ways, the responsibility is to stay away from other people. But that's not always the case. And so we want to be able to, uh, even when we have to socially distance, we want to find ways to be in service of others. And that can be, you know, Ashwin, what you're doing today by spreading awareness. It can be uh, through your various social media um, efforts um, in sharing information, correct information, and helping to um, promote the best practices um, and make that aware to people in your neighborhood, in your community. Um, so you can have local impact to people around you. Um, if you aspire to have um, broader impact, it can be um, to those in the region in which you live, or it can be halfway around the world. And it doesn't have to mean giving money. So um, it it really just means getting involved in some way, shape, or form. Um, if you're a religious person, it could be through your church community, um, or your temple, or your synagogue, or your mosque, or whatever community you belong to you can find a way to be in service of others. And if you're not religious, there are plenty of other ways to get involved as well. So um, organizations like FEMRIC and, um, and and many others that are out there doing great work, they are in constant need of volunteers and support. Um, and there's no limit to the impact um, that all of us together can have for the betterment of society. Uh, so whether you spend an hour calling a senior in your community who might be suffering from loneliness or helping to deliver groceries, or to do things that we need to do right now to make sure those who are vulnerable in our communities are looked after. That's what I would, you know, that's the call to action I would encourage you um, to consider. Um, and then if it's halfway around the world, um, you know, it could be 
uh, you know, sending uh, postcards to communities, letting them know that they are loved, they are thought about, they are cared for. Um, you know, simple messages um, of this sort, which um, you know, plenty of organizations can can help you coordinate um, how to how to let the uh, how to let your impact uh, be realized. Um, but find a way to be in service of others. I guess you know, at the end of the day, that would be my my single uh, call to action for for anyone who might be listening. Yeah, thank you for your words and your time. And thank you for listening to this episode of Global Health Direct. You can get more information on the Facebook page at GH Direct. I hope to see you in our next episode where we continue to focus on global problems by getting local perspectives.